That was a sermon. That song was a sermon. If you were paying attention to those words, was William Cowper a hard-hearted man? Or did he have one of those big sensitive blobs inside that caused him much havoc to his soul? And yet he said some wonderful things there in that song for us. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to go a modest amount of time, and we're going to close with a song, and we'll call it a day. But let's go to Matthew chapter 19 and consider some miscellaneous, and I have many pages of them, things to consider to understand the afflictions God allows in our lives. In Matthew chapter 19, we have the rich young ruler. And I don't want the whole exchange between him and the Lord. I'll take three verses, verses 20 through 22. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The point I'd like to make here, and we want to cover some points rather quickly, God knows your buttons. God knows your buttons. This rich young ruler, we knew his button, and we find out his button, because the way he responded to the Lord asking him to sell all that he had and give to the poor. The Lord knows you better than you know you. So when things come and you th- and it hurt and it hurts and it's a real gut punch that others may have been able to resist better than you, it's because God knows your buttons. And it's wise to keep that in mind and so that when they happen, you realize there is someone that knows me better than my spouse knows me, better than my parents know me, my children know me, the Lord knows me, and He tries me with these particular events because He wants to see if we really love Him. So He goes after the things that He believes could compete with Him in our hearts and our minds. So just remembering that is helpful. When things happen that really get to you, remember who sent them in faithfulness. If there is anything you value that's even close to Christ, He may well test you regarding it. So why don't you just get everything out of your life that is even close to Christ? Therefore, He has no reason to take it away from you. Or, if He were to take it away from you, it's not going to bother you because you have made a choice for it not to compete with Him. Thus, the Lord Jesus Christ said in Luke chapter 14 that if you're going to follow Him, you need to count up the cost of discipleship and be willing to hate. And He goes through a whole string of relationships in Luke chapter 14. If you're going to come and follow Me, you need to hate your father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and your own life also. Otherwise, you cannot be My disciple. And those are buttons to a lot of people. That's a list of buttons when you deal with those close family relationships, and the Lord's going to bring a sword. He's promised He'll bring a sword in those relationships because it's those relationships that test how much we love Him. So it shouldn't surprise us. We should understand this is coming from a faithful Heavenly Father, and He knows my button. He knows that this relationship was very important to me, and I I embraced it, and I loved it very much, and He's testing it. He's taking it away from me. But I love Him more. I love Him more. We need to respond that way. It is wise to not have buttons. And by buttons, I mean things that are important to you that can cause temptation if you were to be tried in that particular area. The, The piece of wisdom is, get rid of them so that the Lord can't use them against you in testing your love of Him. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Anything you love dearly, be willing to give it up for Him so He doesn't have to take it away. And He may go ahead and take it away anyway because He wants to see you reveal His glory and strength in the matter. 
1 Corinthians 10, we've already used verse 13 this morning in the first service. Let's go to verse 12 this time. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Let's get rid of any self-confidence about being able to handle afflictions because the Lord can very well arrange a test for you that will take you down. The context here in verses 5 through 11 are the failures of the church of God under the Old Testament. It says in verse 5 that they didn't please God and were overthrown in the wilderness. They uh, they lusted after evil things in verse 6. They were idolaters and fornicators in verse 7. They were fornicators again in verse 8. They tempted Christ and were murmurers in verse 9. And we shouldn't do any of those things. And those things, according to verse 11, were written for our example. All that history of the Old Testament church that we have in the Bible is to give us an example that God's church is able to do those kind of things. And if you read that list and you say, I wouldn't do that. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. The New Testament example is Peter. That when Jesus told them on the night before his crucifixion that they would all desert him, Peter said, I'll never desert you. I'll never desert you. So the warning is, don't say that. Jesus immediately turned and said, before the cock crows, you'll have already deserted me and denied me. And so let's get rid of any self-confidence that when we look around the church and we see someone struggling with an infirmity, let's not mock them in our minds or in our words especially. And let's not think that we would be able to stand because the Lord is able, and these points sort of mixed together, find your button and bring you down. Lord, save us from any self-confidence. We want all of our confidence in the Lord. Solomon taught repeatedly, pride cometh before a fall. The haughtier you get, you're just asking the Lord to bring you down. We have a sermon entitled, Famous Last Words, where men like with the Titanic said, even God couldn't sink this ship. Those are the wrong words to say if you're going to get on board a vessel and move into open water. That's just the wrong thing to say. Famous last words. So let's get rid of that uh, self-confidence. Look at Proverbs chapter 24. These are miscellaneous points that I'll make some of and we will end this study. The Lord is going to bring the afflictions to all of us. Let's be prepared. Let's embrace them. Let's count them all joy. Let's remember Him. Let's find perfect peace trusting Him. Proverbs 24.10 If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. That works both ways. If you faint, because the Lord brings some adversity, you have small strength. If you remain cheerful and thankful and worshiping God and not moving in your faith, then it shows that your strength is great. So it works both ways. And we want to remember this little rule. If affliction is for our good, then we should embrace challenges which identify the strong. We want to embrace negative events or adversity in our lives because they're what make us better and they are the easier and better way, not the easier, but the better way of giving God glory. Negative events rather than positive ones. Let's embrace the challenges. As in all other human endeavors, Challenges accomplished separate you from the rest of the crowd. And we want to be separated from the rest of the crowd because we're in a race and we want to separate ourselves to hit the finish line first. Because that's how Paul explained the Christian race to us. And one way we can run faster is to be cheerful through negative events. That's what Christ has called us to do. Romans chapter 8. The Word of God is filled with comfort and advice, and instructions, and rules, and promises that pertain to afflictions. If you don't learn the Word of God, if you don't remember the Word of God, and if we don't share the Word of God among ourselves, we will not be equipped to handle the vicissitudes and changes of life. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know. Do you know this? I don't. I didn't say know the verse. Do you know the doctrine of this verse? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Everything works together for good. 
And the context for this verse needs to be seen. It, it is shown to us in verses 17 and 18. For instance, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, you know, those are the things that are going to work together for good, along with Jesus coming for us. We, we go to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Look at this list of things. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. There's a list of seven negative things, bad events in life, leading all the way up to the threat of losing your life. But we're more than conquerors in all these things, because all of them are being worked together for good by our God and Father in heaven. If you love God, then you are His elect, and He has a purpose for your life. Believe it. And the context shows us suffering. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. We have weaknesses. But they all work together for good to them that love God. He's going to take care of us. He has a plan for us that's going to see us all the way into heaven. And none of these things are going to hinder us. That's why verse 35 has that list. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is it a man bringing tribulation into our lives? Is it someone bringing distress? Is it someone bringing a sword? No, no, and no. Because God loves us and nothing can separate us from His love in verses 38 and 39, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in verse 35. Everything is going to work together for good to them that love God. If we want Romans 8.28 to be our verse or your verse, you have to love God. The Bible way of loving God. It's not your way of loving God. You don't know how to love God. The Bible teaches us how we should love God. And if we love God, then we are the called according to His purpose because His purpose has already regenerated us so that we do love God. But it's our duty, according to the book of Jude, to keep ourselves in the love of God. We don't have to keep ourselves in God's love of us. We have to keep ourselves in our love of God. And if we love God, if we put our trust in Him and lay hold of Him and delight in Him and keep our mind stayed on Him, He will give us perfect peace and we belong in this verse. If we don't love God, then we're not of His purpose. If we're not of His purpose, this verse doesn't belong to us. This verse only belongs to some. Help us, Lord. We're thankful for the wonderful things you said. All things afflicting us work together because of his overruling providence of every part of our lives. But it doesn't just say they work together. It says they work together for good. Amen. And we've, we've been learning that, that afflictions are for our profit. Let's go to J- James chapter 5. Sorry for the hesitation. I hope you know why. Because we're going to end on a timely basis and I have too much material to finish. James chapter 5. This is good. Afflictions endured bring reward. Oh yes. The Lord knows exactly what He puts us through. Don't ever think that He doesn't know what you're experiencing. The pain that you're enduring. The grief that someone or something has caused you, He knows it. He knows it fully. He knows how much you're able to bear. He is going to hold it from getting close to that point of crushing you. He knows. And so when you deal with it properly, scripturally, cheerfully, He will reward you for it. Afflictions endured bring reward. James chapter 5, verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example. The word of the Lord is saying to us, the prophets give us a great example. Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Those great men that we look at as heroes in the Bible suffered affliction in their lives, and yet they are God's favorites because He chose them to a special ministry of revealing His Word to the people of Israel under the Old Testament and to the Christian church in the New. They have they set us an example of suffering affliction and of patience. How they endured. Remember Isaiah? Remember Jeremiah? 
Remember Ezekiel? No one would listen to them. Constantly criticized. A whole negative assault against them. Put in a pit. Put in a dungeon. They're a great example. They showed us how it can be done. Because we're not going to even experience anything like they did. But they were able to handle it. Verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. This is the point I'm trying to make to you. Afflictions endured bring reward. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. Well, we've read it. And you've heard it from the pulpit. And have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Amen and amen. If there was one day for each chapter of Job, how many days did Job maintain his integrity? Two. How many days did he not maintain his integrity? Twenty-nine. If we give a day per chapter. Because the the poor... No, we're going to give him more than that. We're going to go all the way until chapter 42. Let's take off two to start the book, one to end the book, and call it 39 days. That he did not maintain his integrity until God got very serious with him at the end. But And I'm saying all that to show you how pitiful, and as this verse says, of tender mercy, the Lord is, because Job is referred to as patient Job. Even though when we read the book of Job... We wouldn't exactly define chapters 3 through 41 as cheerfully enduring negative events, would we? No, not exactly. But look at the verse here in James 5.11. The Lord wipes all the negative stuff away, says Job was a patient man, and look at the reward Job got. Everything was doubled to him. Thank you, Lord. And this is given to us in the New Testament as an example of how we count them happy, which endure. Thank you, Lord. If we go to Revelation chapter 2, then 3, there are seven churches addressed. At the end of the letter to each church, there is a statement, Him that overcometh will I... Oh, and the... Listen, you want an exercise? A short exercise. Go home, pull out a pen, or get online, type something. And type down the seven rewards for the overcomers right. to the, of the seven churches of Asia. It's just fabulous stuff. You know, we, we don't need to take the time to go through them all because I want to remind you that they are there and that should be sufficient. But look at chapter 2 and verse 7. And of course, I could get started and read all of them to you. Revelation 2, 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now you have got to be kidding me. Is it in the red writing in your Bibles? I have a black letter edition. It's red? Then it's Jesus. So Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus that if you'll be an overcomer, I will let you eat from the tree of life. Wouldn't we all like to go back to Eden and do things a little differently? Jesus Christ has done it for us. The two Adams. The first Adam ruined it. The second Adam restored it. We're going to have the tree of life, yielding its fruit in all of its seasons. That's just a wonderful promise. Who is speaking? Is the speaker here got the power to accomplish this? Or is this John making a, a, a suggestion? Is this John with willful thinking? Wishful thinking? This is the Lord Jesus. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I don't need to read anymore. Every church gets a statement like that. And that ought to excite us to be overcomers. What is an overcomer? It doesn't let these little hangnails and speed bumps crush us. We overcome them. We go over them. We live above them. We go beyond them. We don't let them slow us down. We're going to have them. And brethren, as this church ages, there is a whole host of them coming. They're going to sweep through our midst. We're going to be snatched away from each other. Are we going to call it an affliction or are we going to call it a deliverance? 
We have to live for it like it's a deliverance. If we learn to deal with death appropriately, these little things that fall far short of death are nothing in comparison. It's all coming. We're all going to rot in front of each other. We're doing it right now. The power of corruption is sucking the life out of every part of our bodies while we sit here. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Unbelievable. Fabulous. Wonderful. If you go all the way to the end, chapter 21. I mean, chapter 22 is the final chapter, but look at what 21 says. The theme of the book of Revelation is to be an overcomer because Jesus Christ has already overcome and He's going to destroy all our enemies and the future is as bright as it can possibly be and brighter yet and then still brighter and brighter, longer and brighter. Brighter. Because you can't even imagine what it's going to be like. I can't imagine what it's going to be like. Revelation 21, verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Wow. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That is, that's the message of the gospel. The Bible closes out with a message like that. We blew it in the front end of the Bible. In the back end of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ restored it for us. Inherit all things. Okay, if you're going to inherit all things, then uh, what do you want to tell me about? Your hot water heater went out this week? And it flooded your garage. Hmm. And it got some mats and carpets wet. And you want to tell me about it? You want to think about it. You want to put it in your Facebook account that disaster has struck. My hot water heater went out. And because of new government regulations, all that stinking government, because of government regulations, we have to have more expensive hot water heaters now. It cost me four smackers. Cost me 400 bucks. I'm crushed. It's on Facebook for all of you to see that my hot water heater went out. What were these people doing? They were giving their lives. They were laying down their lives. Do, do little things ever get us down? Did we go through this a week or two ago? Don't you say amen. That's my wife. Lord, forgive us for letting little things get us down. Help us to be overcomers and to embrace even the big things to have the spirit of the martyrs that went before us. Yes, Lord. You know that God sees you when you're suffering affliction, don't you? Remember Hagar and how she names the Lord? God saw the affliction of Israel when they were in Egypt and heard their groaning and sent a deliverer for them named Moses. Look at Psalm 113. Never forget this. Psalm 113. Ladies, I don't know exactly how you think your thoughts, but I would believe that there are times that you think much of your life is a thankless task because you aren't thanked for it. And I'm not making fun of your desire to be thanked once in a while for it. You should be thanked often for it. So you think that you have thankless tasks that you do, but I want you to know that there is a being that sees every one of those tasks done. He sees how tired you are. He knows He knows more about your tiredness than you know about your tiredness. He knows how, much, how easily others in the household could have helped you with that particular project, but they don't really care because they just want to have fun. And you have to make sure everything gets done. That's as good as I get at poetry. <laughs> but we have verses like this. These are the verses that we want to remember. Psalm 113. Verse 3, I'll leave off verse 3, because I don't want you to be distracted. Verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations, amen, and His glory above the heavens, amen. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high? There is no one like Him. There is no one high as Him. There is no God like Him. But then it goes on to say, who humbleth Himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? exclamation point. 
Our God is high. Verse 4, He is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. There's no other being like Him. Verse 5, But He humbles Himself. He gets down to behold the things that are in heaven and that are in earth. He sees. He sees. If He sees, that's all you need. If He thanks, that's all the thanksgiving you need. And men and children, I'm asking you, you should give thanks to your mothers and wives for all that they do do. And they have a lot to do every day. They don't work five and then get two off. Or work four and get three off. Or work three twelves and get four off. They work seven twenty-fours. But, I want to say to them, look at the text. God humbles Himself to come down and behold. When you're doing that last dish, when you're looking at the pile of dishes, which is a worst case, and you're saying, well, that's going to... oh." Where'd they come from? Where'd all these dishes come from? I just had the kitchen clean. And I'm saying all that to make you think about affliction. Now, a load of dishes is not really too big of an affliction, but the Lord sees everything. He humbles Himself. This text is so wonderful. And the Holy Spirit put an exclamation point there. Our translators picked up the emphasis on this verse that God, this great God that is so high, gets right down and sees us. He beholds us. He sees you. He is truly the God of Hagar and you. Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. Remember, He counts your wanderings. He has your tears in His bottle. And are they not written in his book? He counts, he bottles, he writes it down. If you had a husband, or a father, or a son, that kept track of every single one of your difficult days by counting your numberings, if they tenderly bottled your tears, if they wrote down every painful minute that you had, wouldn't that be nice? Not really. Because what can they do about it? But the Lord does it. It's the Lord doing it. It's Psalm 56 and verse 8, but that's not where we're going. We're going to Isaiah. Listen, there's so many verses to share on this subject. The people of, because many are the afflictions of the righteous. There have been righteous men from Abel to the end of the Bible, and so their afflictions are described for us in the Word of God. Isaiah 63 and verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled. But let's just leave, you know, there's us, but they rebelled. But that, that ninth verse, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. In verse 8, he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. Verse 7, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us. Brethren, you want three verses? Then take Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 9. Memorize them. Read them. Meditate on them. He was afflicted in all your affliction. That is personal. That is wonderful. Thank you, Lord. you got to keep on believing. Look at Psalm 27. There's so many verses. Lord, we're thankful for your precious word. Yes. Please find a verse from the ones I select that each person in here will find and hear something that comforts them. That their soul will light on some sweet promise there to keep them from despair. Psalm 27, verse 13, I had fainted. The things that happen in life are enough to crush us. I had fainted, but he didn't. We would write that today, I would have fainted. Because of the word unless, it tells us that. I had fainted, I didn't. I would have, could have, unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Do you believe that you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Let's stir ourselves up to be courageous, 
to, to embrace our afflictions and trust the Lord and wait on Him. He'll strengthen our heart that we are able to bear it. This is one of the ways in which you can escape a temptation that He allows into your heart, into your life, by giving you enough strength in your heart that you can bear it and wait upon Him. Wonderful two verses right there. If I was having to list my top ten verses about dealing with affliction, Psalm 27, the last two, get in there. They make the cut. Because I had fainted unless I had believed. It tells me what I need to do. And that is to trust the Lord that His mercy is coming. And His mercy always comes. Sometimes it comes as soon as you go to bed and get up in the morning. And all of a sudden you have a different perspective on things. And hopefully the Lord was talking to you during the night. Look at Isaiah chapter 57 with me. I I, I see a hand being raised. And someone wants to ask me, but what if I die? I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But what if I die? Okay, let's deal with it. What if I die? First two verses of Isaiah 57. The righteous perisheth. Okay, here's one that died. He believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's too, this is just too much fun. Amen. The Lord's Word is so full of precious promises for us to have the right spiritual perspective on life. The righteous perisheth. He died. He believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, but he died. And no man layeth it to heart. No man cares. No man's able to get a right perspective on it. So the Lord's going to tell us. And merciful men are taken away, none considering... They don't know this secret fact. That the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. Does that sound like he's still alive? In another land of the living. That's better than this land of the living. Jesus argued in Matthew chapter 22 that Moses knew that Abraham was still alive. Because God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Where are they walking? you got to be alive to walk. They're walking through heaven. They're, They're in their beds. Life and all of its struggles is over. The worst event that can happen to a child of God is the best event. And if we would ever get a hold of that fully, like the Apostle Paul did, who said it is far better to depart and to be with Christ than to remain here, nothing down here would bother us. Look at the wisdom of Isaiah 57. Thank you, Lord. You'll deliver us one way or another. And that is a great deliverance. He'll give strength to those that wait upon Him, as I showed you from Psalm 17. Do not labor or go beyond reasonable effort in your life. Remember this from Psalm 127? These are life-saving verses. This is the perspective for how you ought to live, how you ought to face difficulties and challenges. While you're embracing the challenge, the Lord wants you to work diligently. He wants us all to work hard. Psalm 127, but He wants us to put a limit on it. Psalm 127, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. If you want to get something built, you have to labor and labor diligently, but the Lord is the only one that's going to bring it to completion. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It doesn't matter what alarm system you have, and you ought to have some prudent measures to keep your house and family safe, but the Lord has to keep you. So it's really the Lord. You make a reasonable effort, and the Lord does the rest. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, But safety is of the Lord. Verse 2, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. You have an affliction in your life and it's keeping you awake at night. You are bothered by it. Get rid of it. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. Turn it over to the Lord, for so He giveth His beloved sleep. It's a wonderful verse. I'm so thankful I was taught those two verses. I use them often. I can worry as much as anyone in here. 
I can eat the bread of sorrows faster than anybody. I can gorge on the bread, bread of sorrows. I can think of, I can connect this event and this event and this event, have all of you turning over to the Mormon church. I'm capable of anything in my, my head. I love this verse. Do your reasonable best and trust the Lord for the rest. He wants us to sleep. I love going to sleep at night with a problem and telling him, you know that by nature, I would like to sit up and fret about this and think about it and write another list of 50 things, 50 points or factors about this particular circumstance, but I'm going to bed. Because you told me to, and I quote this verse to him. I quote this all the time under the sheets, all the time. And I just share that with you. I'm so thankful for being taught those two verses. They're life-saving verses. They change your perspective on things. It's not up to you to build the house. It's not up to you to keep the city. The Lord's got to do it. All you do is your reasonable, precautionary, prudent measures and trust Him for the rest. And so just go to bed. You know, and sleeping on it this way is a spiritual exercise with the Lord for Him to bless you spiritually. And going to bed always gives you a better perspective in the morning anyway. It is just double blessings everywhere you turn if we do it God's way. It's just win-win. It's flat out winning. And we want to win. You know that afflictions can be shortened if you get the lesson quickly? Remember Elihu's words to Job? You know there's profit in the pig pen, right? If the Lord takes you down to a pig pen, and you've ever been in a pig pen in your life, and I mean a metaphorical pig pen, there's profit in affliction for lusting after corn husks got the prodigal's attention. So we can be thankful for this rule whenever it was applied in our lives that we were in the pig pen. And we can pray for this rule in other lives to get them to their right minds. Just remember that affliction has pig pen profit. You know, we have a song in our book called Afflictions, and it's the story in four verses of the prodigal's life and how uh, the Lord brought him to repent. Manasseh was in Babylon and humbled himself greatly, and the Lord put him back on the throne of Judah. David wrote that afflictions from God helped him to pursue godliness. Afflictions can't be compared to eternity. I can't go there. Do you know how many verses we have on that point? It's called our light affliction for a moment. Now see, I called them hangnails and speed bumps in preaching to you. The Apostle Paul called them light afflictions for a moment. But what he was talking about were real afflictions. Suffering persecution, being stoned, beaten, whipped, as he was many times as his resume in 2 Corinthians 11 tells us. But there in 2 Corinthians 4, he said that it is light affliction for a moment. So the, the weight is light. The duration is a moment. Cannot be compared to an eternal, the duration is eternity, weight of glory. Not light, but this pressing down, overflowing weight of eternal glory. The quality is weight. The duration is eternity. Compared to the quality is light. And the duration is a moment. That's the comparison that the apostle wants to make. And he went on as an accountant in Romans chapter 8 to say that I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Listen to an accountant speak. An inspired accountant. An inspired apostolic accountant. I reckon, that's an accounting term, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. And those martyrs that Brother Stephen brought to us every Sunday for the year 2014... The man and his family did a great deal of work to bring us a martyr every Sunday. Those martyrs, they had that in perspective. They didn't need Psalm 73. They were past Psalm 73. They knew that if they died at the hands of Rome or Rome's harlot daughters, they were going to be in the presence of the Lord. And they went there cheerfully. They went there gloriously. We were all humbled every Sunday when we heard about those martyrs, wondering if we had any of their character in us. We don't face anything like they faced. But they had this eternal perspective in place. And if we have it in place, it makes things so easy. The ultimate affliction is dying in this world. And when you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and you read there of Solomon describing the decay of the human body, 
and telling young, young people, give God your best. Give it to Him now while you've got power and the days are good before the evil days come. The evil days start coming on us. Everything breaks down. I know you don't feel it because you're just feeling this throbbing testosterone in you and the strength and human growth hormone. And you know, you drop down one night and do three push-ups. The next night you can do five. The next night you can do ten. The next night you can do twenty. Pretty soon you're doing a hundred push-ups in two weeks. Almost. And you know what your diet was? Coke and cookies. If I was to shop only at GNC and drop down to do three push-ups, I wouldn't be able to move for two days. I'm, the change, it, but it's called the evil days. Push-ups used to be just something fun you had to do before you went to bed every night. There had to be a big mirror there. Don't, women, just, just drop out for a moment. You know, every night, my poor father knows exactly where they were done. I'm sorry for staining the carpet. With chest sweat, isn't that an exciting subject to bring out of the pulpit? The change. The change. It's coming on all of us. So let's deal with it by realizing that death is the ultimate affliction. If we learn to deal with the ultimate affliction and be ready for it and be cheerful about it coming, everything else loses its impact. That's the point. Oh, I've got to share this. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul, watch him pretend that uh, he's asking the Corinthians, if I were a gladiator, would I go fight because I'm an Epicurean or because I believe in the resurrection? Right. It's just... In 1 Corinthians 15, which is to prove the resurrection of the body, Paul has two practical arguments. In verse 29, the practical argument is, listen, folks, I have noticed your baptisms. I have noticed that you put a person under the water and raise them up again out of the water. Now, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why are you putting them under the water? Why are you bringing them back up out of the water? Why are you practicing this mode of baptism called immersion if you don't believe in the resurrection, that is just that is just powerful and it is sweet. That is 1 Corinthians 15, 29. It's called baptism for the dead. That's where the Mormons go nuts, build their temples, and have an underground baptistry down there where you can go get baptized for all your relatives. If you can find your family tree that has a thousand relatives, you can get baptized a thousand times. You can get baptized for a thousand relatives. That's why they have the greatest genealogical database in the world except for maybe... The U.S. government, maybe. But second argument. Watch. Verse 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Paul asks, why do we apostles stand in jeopardy every hour? Our lives are at risk every hour. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, You're all so excited about me being a great apostle on the behalf of your church, but I die daily. I am facing death every day. And here he goes metaphorical. Verse 32, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, that's what certain gladiators did. They'd throw them in the arena to fight, you know, great cats from Africa and see who was going to win. And the crowd didn't really care if the gladiator killed the beast or the beast killed the gladiator. All they wanted to do was see some blood. Paul's reasoning, if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That verse is saying this. If, if, since I die daily, verse 30, since I am in jeopardy every day, with my life, there's only two possible conclusions. I'm either an Epicurean that thinks life is just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, or I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Why do I put my life at risk every day? 
This is the second practical argument in these three verses because he's, he's telling us that he is speaking metaphorically after the manner of men. Paul didn't hop into the Colosseum and fight animals in Ephesus. He is saying, if I was a gladiator, they put their lives in jeopardy every day, mine's in jeopardy every day. What doth it advantage me if the dead rise not? I must be just an Epicurean that wants to eat and have sport because we're going to die and there's nothing after that. All of that was to say, one of the ways to deal with affliction and fear in life is to believe in the resurrection of the dead and to think of our life beyond this life. The ultimate affliction is the best ending, and that is to die and to be with the Lord. You know, your company is good when you endure affliction because you're like the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets that went before us. We want His Word in our hearts. There are so many wonderful verses in the Bible and the Bible says faith, what you need is faith. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Listen to Scorby, listen to sermons, get brethren around you that talk to you and communicate with the ones that give you Bible verses. They're the things that we they're the ones that we need, and they have the information that we want to be reminded of because it comes from God's Word. In Psalm 119 and verse 50, it says. Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. David found his hope in God's word that God had given him. Hope comes from God's word. Verse 92, unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. He he did not perish in the affliction God sent him because God's law had been his delight. There's profit in coming into this house. From the first words this morning from Habakkuk chapter 3 to the passages of Scripture read to the song sung, we were stirred up after the singing of those three songs in the first assembly this morning. I wanted so bad to jump up and interrupt this service and say that we had just been greatly blessed by God's ordained means of encouraging our faith because you were all speaking and teaching and admonishing me in the faith about matters of affliction. The sound was rolling through this building. You know, I I do have a sweet spot up here at the front, but it was rolling, and the words were wonderful. And I was overwhelmed with the fact that we as a church are using God's ordained methods, and they are working. They're working on the pastor. I was lifted up in the Lord. And so we come into His house, and like Chris read to us, In the first assembly, Asaph got his mind put back together when he came into the house of the Lord. Your response affects others, brethren. Look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73 and verse 15. Asaph is talking about these terrible thoughts that he's having, that there's no reason for me to live the disciplined, temperate Christian life because I have it worse than the wicked around me. You know, he has these thoughts of envying the wicked. And he says in verse 15, If I say... I will speak thus. These thoughts that he has tumbling around, if I let them out and I speak of them, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Do you understand what he's saying? Uh, This little weak moment that I'm having, this, this spiritual meltdown that I'm having, my feet had well nigh slipped. I was in a mess for a while. If I were to let it out, I would offend every one of your real children. I want to take from that this. When you respond well to afflictions in your life, you bolster our courage and faith to face our own. If you were to pop out with words like Asaph, it would discourage us. One final verse. Whole page on it, but uh, we'll give it a minute. Proverbs chapter 15. I'm not complaining. It's time to end. The Lord is so gracious to us to fill His Word with wonderful things for us to remember. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 15. You've heard it before in the last couple of weeks, but I want to close with this and all the verses that pertain to it in the Bible, including Habakkuk that we started with. So we've made full circle. How in the world can we rejoice and dance in total economic failure like Habakkuk described? This way. Proverbs 15, 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. 
There is no real affliction in verse 15. There's no real evil, meaning trouble, in verse 15, the first clause. That's all in your head. You have chosen to have a miserable life. Some of you were raised with parents who believed in the more misery that they could talk about and the misery they could produce was a happy home. I wasn't raised that way. Thanks be to God. Some of you were raised in homes where there was no positive, happy, light, dancing, rejoicing, positive outlook on everything. And so you constantly heard whining and you constantly heard complaining and you've grown up and you haven't been rebuked and corrected like you should have been and so you've perpetuated it for another generation. And so you end up being this guy in the ver- the first half of the verse, all the days of the afflicted are evil. This is a person that only sees the negative parts of life. You can walk up to them and see them, their face are cast down because if you've got a merry heart, it shows on a lit up countenance. And so you walk up to someone with their face hanging. It doesn't matter what they say, they're not happy. And if they're not happy, they're probably not a Christian. There's too many things for a Christian to be happy about. Proverbs 15.15 All the days of the afflicted are evil. They can find something wrong with every single day. And they they just go from one problem to the next problem to the next problem. All they want to talk about are their problems when for every problem they've got one million blessings. And if they've got a hundred problems, there's a hundred million blessings. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Look at the second half of this verse. Verse 15, but in distinction, in opposition against the man of the first half of the verse, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. You can choose by the grace of God and the word of God and the promises of God to have a merry heart. The, it says in 17.22, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. There are, t- there are scientific studies coming out now that a happy person in a monogamous relationship with a spouse that enjoys life lives longer and has fewer diseases. And so it says in 17.22, a, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. But not only does it do good like a medicine for our physical well-being, it gives you a continual feast because it doesn't matter what you're eating. It hardly matters who you're with. You can be happy and have a feast. And the Lord has given us every reason why we should have merry hearts and we can have a continual feast. We all have things in our lives that we wish were different right now. But if God gave us everything the way that we want them, we would be spoiled brats. And if we're wise, we'll admit that. He keeps us honest. He keeps us humble. But we can still have a continual feast. The gospel provides us that feast. Isaiah 55 that I started with a couple of weeks ago was a wonderful passage. This verse, all the days of the afflicted are evil. It's a choice. But he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Thank you, Lord.